Well, as much as I want to launch into part two of our mini-sermon series, Selah, I need to take a moment at the beginning of this sermon and address the vision of what we're doing as we preach the Word of God, and then as we sing songs, and then as we're dispersed in community. Right now, what's about to happen is I'm about to read a passage of Scripture, really powerful one today. They're all powerful, but this one especially, oh my goodness, unbelievable. And what we believe is happening in real time, human beings are catching a vision of the reason why they were created. People who already believe in Jesus are making adjustments to their lives, to their plans. They're being convicted of sin in real time. The Holy Spirit is also reminding them that they belong to God. People who don't believe in Jesus are discovering, maybe even for the very first time, oh, this is what it truly means to be a Christian, and this is what Jesus has to offer that nobody else has to offer me. All of that's happening every time we preach. But here's what else is happening, and and kind of the bad news I want to begin this sermon with. The third thing that's happening in this room is there are people who are here to check the box that they attended church, who have no intention of ever applying anything that is said from this stage to their lives. They are here because they want to consider themselves to be a Christian without ever demonstrating the life change that comes from that. Those three realities will always be present where the word of God is preached. And really, no matter how many times I I talk about hell, I talk about sin, I talk about the truth of the scriptures, some keep coming back. But when it seems like that group of people are starting to affect the culture of who we are becoming on Sundays, as your leader, I have to say something. And it's gotten back to me that in the last couple of months, our church has experienced a danger, slippery slope of a lot of people deciding to leave our gatherings before the last song of worship is sung. And when I say a lot, I mean more than we had lunch reservations and miles went long again. Here's a good plan. I always go long. (laughs) Make the reservation later. But our team was coming back to me and going, hey, um... It's not just like the prayer team trying to get to the back and be in position to pray, and it's not just like parking team trying to get where they're going. It's like people who want to beat the, the traffic out of the parking lot. They're dipping out, take communion, and, uh, and leaving while the final worship song is on. And, and what it made me realize, and our whole team thought that was so ironic, and if you've been coming to ACC for a while, you're going, no way. Because you know, a couple of years ago, I used to say all the time, I left a church in metro Atlanta, Georgia, where hundreds of people did that where the the pastor was praying at the end of his sermon, and there were hundreds of people who got up and went to their car and left to beat the lunch rush to Jason's Deli, I used to say, because we don't have a Jason's Deli, and I really want one. Um, But but when I moved here, I said, and it's been a while since I said it, I said, if we ever become that, let's just close the doors. Let's just forget about it, because we are not here to check the box of lukewarm cultural Christianity. We're either here for two reasons, because we're Christians who want to be changed in light of the Word of God, Or we don't believe in Jesus yet and we want to learn more. Those two groups, you're going to love being here. You're going to feel so welcome. You're going to feel like this moment was designed for you to have an encounter with God. But if you're in group number three, I just, one, I want to humbly ask you, like, God is changing lives in real time. We have to be more sensitive to that than your lunch plans. And if you are here to just check the box, I'm not saying if you've left in the last couple of weeks, that's why you're here. I just see a relationship between the two. But it would... I think you should ask the question whether or not this is really where you want to be. Because there's going to be things Sunday after Sunday after Sunday that are going to fly in the face 
of that type of Christianity. I, I say this in front of us today because I want to preserve the culture that has made us so special. And sometimes that's easier with 300 people rather than 3,000. It's tough to keep everybody informed on, hey, this is why what we do. And this is what this moment is all about. And so if you're in this room, we're asking you that you stay tuned in. You know our gatherings lately have gone a little bit longer, and I do semi-apologize for that. And then even as I make this announcement right now, some of you are like, no, the one Sunday I have to pee, he makes this announcement. Like, no shame. You got to get up during this next one. No shame if you got, you're like, we, the one time. Some of y'all are looking at your spouse, the one time we have plans to go. Like, it's not, don't make this legalism. This is a general statement about the culture of our church. And if you're watching online and you're like, oh, he doesn't even see me, so I can just dip out. Y'all go ahead and look at somebody next to you right now and tell them, I see you. I see you. I just want to make sure somebody's there. And the cool thing is if you leave early today, everyone in Overflow who's outside right here will see you. And, and we'll be like, I could have had your seat. Wow. That's amazing. I, uh, I love this church, and I just... I don't want us to lose what is so special about what God has created here. And so please receive that from a posture of humility, not from a smart aleck who wants to have his way. Like as much flesh might have been in that, I promise it is just because I feel like the spirit is guiding something so significant here and I want to steward it well. Uh, we're doing a mini series called Selah. Can somebody say Selah? Selah is a Hebrew word. It appears over 70 times in the Old Testament. And the closest definition that we can get, scholars debate this, is that it means an intentional pause for reflection. It pops up in the Psalms where you're reading these poems or these songs of the people of God, and you're supposed to see it and go, oh, I can't just continue on. There's an interlude where I need to stop and reflect. It's become synonymous in the Christian life with rest. But this series is different. We're not just talking about slowing down to reflect and take a break. We're talking about how God created rhythms of urgency and recovery for our good and for his glory. So often when we talk about rest in the church, it's like, hey, we're all overcommitted and overwhelmed and we need to slow down. We need to rest. We need to take a vacation. We need to spend time alone with God. We need to breathe. We need to do yoga, even though that's like from an Eastern practice, like we need to do Christian yoga and we need to do all this. We need to do all this stuff to get our minds and bodies and, and, and our souls healthy. And, and I think all of that's good. But for high capacity people like myself, sometimes we hear that and we go, ah, just, is there a way to do both? Yes. God created the world in six days and rested on one. There's a rhythm to this that's, hey, you are supposed to have high energy and be using all of your mind's abilities in some instances in your life, but you need to know that the ability to sustain over time in a healthy way involves ebbs and flows. It involves this word called rhythm. And so we're trying to develop healthy rhythms in our lives to where we go back in the presence of God and then we re-engage with the world just like our rabbi Jesus did with his life. Here was the powerful revelation of last week. If you missed last week, you got to check it out. But the powerful revelation from Isaiah chapter 30 was this. You cannot continue to use the state of your schedule or the state of your circumstances as an excuse for the state of your soul. Just like Israel can't point at the threat of someone attacking them and say, well, that's why we ran to Egypt to get help instead of you, God, because we felt very real pressure. God's messages in quietness and in trust is your strength, but you were unwilling. 
God is not primarily concerned with whether you're a doctor, stay-at-home mom, a student, in grad school, middle school, empty nester, just retired. Like the seasons ebb and flow with the level of energy that are required of them. But God's concern is that you take ownership over the state of your soul. And too many of us have hidden, including me, for too long beneath the pressure of our schedules and said, that's why I can't get control of my rhythms. That's why I won't spend enough time alone with God. That's why I won't take a rest. And I'm telling you, last week was convicting, but it was good to hear. God's not having any of that. God's going, you're going to take ownership of your soul and get healthy, or you're just going to continue on this endless spin cycle of crazy. And so with part two, I want to drill down a little deeper. And I want to talk about overactivity. I want to talk about busyness. I want to talk about being overwhelmed. But instead of just addressing behaviors that need to be shifted, I want to drill down on the deeper issue. So if you need a title, the title of this sermon, very creative, it's called The Deeper Issue. And uh, I want to talk about the deeper issue to struggling with exhaustion than just having too much to do. If you're a believer in Jesus, every sin struggle that you have, living in a sinful body but being transformed by the Holy Spirit over time, every sin struggle you have has something deeper than a behavioral problem. And too often what we will do is we'll just address the surface level, oh, here's what I keep doing wrong and here's what keeps going wrong. Here's how I keep disobeying God with my actions. And the problem with just addressing those practical things that we're doing to walk away from God is that that is called Old Testament law keeping that looks exactly similar to the Pharisees who Jesus came to oppose with a heart level transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, being mindful of your behaviors that are against God or disobeying God, that's certainly something that you need to be aware of, but there's something deeper to every struggle that you have with sin, and it happens at the level of our desires. God is not primarily concerned with transforming your behavior. He's primarily concerned with transforming your longings, your wants, your desires. Because it is those longings and desires within us that produce the behaviors. So if all you're dealing with is behavior modification, you're just dealing with the fruit. And until you change the root, the product, the fruit of your life is not truly going to change. And so here's the question we're going to ask today. Would it be the most helpful for me today to give you tips on how to rest better and have better rhythms to your life? Or would it be more beneficial to talk about the heart-level desire for why you keep over-exhausting yourself, for why you keep over-committing yourself, for why you keep exposing yourself to way too much? And I'll tell you this, it would be so easy for me to do a message that you would think is super helpful about the practical things. In fact, later on this summer, we're going to do that because I do think we need to practically learn how to spend time alone with God and rest and put in all kind of different priorities to our schedules. That's powerful. That's good. But I think drilling down to the deeper issue, you discover that it's not really about transforming your schedule as much as it's discovering, why do I keep doing this to myself? So instead of spending half the sermon having you wonder, what is it beneath my exhaustion? What is it beneath me being overcommitted. Why do I keep doing this to myself? I'm just going to tell you from the beginning. I believe the deeper issue when we talk about rest is our nonstop longing for approval and worth and value. The reason why we are doing too much, the reason why we can't stop, the reason why we can't turn it off is because we have an unending inner longing in our souls to be approved and valued and be seen as worth it. And this is the reason why 
your burnout. This is the reason why you won't take ownership of your schedule. This is the thing that you've got to uproot if you truly want to see your life change. And I talked about it last week. I talked about how taking a sabbatical this summer is uh, clarifying for me. It's a little bit convicting and illuminating because I'm realizing, like, am I going to miss preaching because I love doing it? Or am I going to miss preaching because... I like the after effect of the things that it does on the inside of my spirit. And when I don't have that, maybe that's what's guiding so much of my behavior to exhaust myself and not necessarily the actual thing in and of itself. Think about other things, other things that people serve to to overextend themselves. Think about money. No one gives their life to accumulating money just because they love stuff. Nobody ends up neglecting their family and just, I'm going to spend all my time on accumulating more stuff because I think the stuff is amazing. People do that because it has comparative value attached to it. Your stuff wouldn't even be enjoyable unless you had someone else's stuff that's less than yours to make you enjoy it. It's all the comparative value that makes me go, I want more of that, so I feel like more than them. And that ascribed value that I've put on that thing will become the reason why I serve it. And you know you know, it's interesting? You can do it under the guise, under the umbrella of providing for your family. You can do it under the umbrella of working as unto the Lord. But you know, at the end of the day, there's a part of your identity beneath all of it that's being propped up by having more than blank. Or there's a part of you that's destroyed by having less than blank. But either way, the idol exists at the level of worth, approval, and value. Achievements the same way. Any Enneagram 3s in the room? Oh, of course you are. 9 a.m. You're like, first. Um, (laughs) Check. (laughs) Um, My wife's an Enneagram 3. And by the way, when I mention the Enneagram, that is not me signing off on all the origins of the Enneagram and inviting an email for, did you know that some this so-and-so said this about the Enneagram? Guys, calm down. Every time I mention something from stage, it's not an invitation to, to, to look into the, the, whether or not I perfectly agree with everything that is taught. It's a personality tool to understand people better. Um, and so, sorry, um, but my wife's an Enneagram 3. But a lot of us, we get worth from achievement, from grades, from looking at, okay, I accomplished this thing, but here's the thing. Did you really just burn yourself out because you wanted to do a good job? Or is there some sort of ascribed value on the inside of that that goes, I feel like I'm fully me once I check the box that I did that. See, what what was contributing toward your overactivity and your exhaustion was actually this inner need for worth and approval and value. And it's not just for people who are over busy or for people who have jobs where they're pursuing doing better and better things. It's also for people who are lazy. Because you're here and you're like, this, all this talk about rest and overactivity, like I just, I waste more time than I utilize. And I'm over here binging Netflix and can't get off my phone and just distracting myself. And I'm, I'm thinking, I don't need more rest. I need more activity. Here's the thing, though. The reason why you're distracting yourself, the reason why you're binging Netflix, the reason why you can't stop with social media, why? It's because of an inner longing for worth, approval, and value. Same thing. You're just looking for it, and it's manifesting itself in a different activity that doesn't look on the surface like productivity, but you're serving at the same altar, and you're coming to the same bitter end. So here's the vision for this sermon, and this could be so powerful if we get this. The vision is our activity must flow from identity, not for it. Our activity in the Christian life must flow from identity, 
not for it. In other words, what I do has to start to flow from who I already am in the sight of God, not in pursuit of someone that I will become over time so that I can check the box. I became liked. I became esteemed. I became loved. And now I'm filled from within. And to do this, we are going to look into... arguably the greatest chapter in the history of the Bible. I try to preach this chapter maybe once a year, maybe once every couple of years, but everything I'm saying in this sermon so far, if you've been in church for a while, you know that it's easier said than done. You know that we are all vying for approval and value in what we do every day, but how exactly do I make sure that the love of God fills me from the inside? Well, I want to show you from the Word of God, and I believe the Word of God will transform us. If you have your Bible, hold it up. Actually, originally, just hold it up if you're single. Let's do this right off the bat. Good news, guys. Hold them up high. Good news. Not one. Two couples got engaged this week whose relationship was rooted in the word of God through the Bible drill. It's good news. It's good news in our other locations. I know it's smaller, so it's more awkward. You got more of a chance to talk after. Everybody else, hold your Bible up. Everybody else. All right, they gave them a moment. That really happened. And, I, and I, like, I like the picture of them getting engaged and at the bottom. Hold it up high. At the bottom, it said, P.S., thank you, Bible drill. I was like, glory to God. That's amazing. <laughs> Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans. Yeah. If you heard someone react to me saying Romans 8 and they are also single, pursue them. Because <laughs> they know what they're talking about. They know where this is going. Romans, in my opinion, is the greatest letter ever written. The Apostle Paul wrote it to the church in Rome because he couldn't visit, even though he wanted to, and he wanted to take up an offering from the church in Rome so he could bring the gospel where he hadn't gone, which was Spain. But because, this is so awesome, because God closed the door and Paul couldn't get to Rome, he has to sit down and write a letter of what his sermon would be if he were in person So that for the rest of human history, we would have this beautiful representation of the gospel. Romans is Paul going, okay, here's what I would say if I was in front of you. Let me write it all down. That's why it's different than some of his shorter letters, because he was visiting them in real time. Well, within Romans, it's not really fair to jump in in Romans chapter 8, because you've got to see the whole picture of how Paul makes his argument contrasting law-keeping with spirit-filled, grace-filled, Jesus-centered faith. And so he contrasts the ways of Jewish rules and restrictions, which were good in and of themselves, but did not produce the transformation that the blood of Jesus offers. And by the time he gets to Romans chapter 8, he's dealing with the implications of the gospel he's already preached. So he's assuming, when we're jumping into this, he's assuming that you already know Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sins. He's assuming you know that you're guilty before a holy God, not just because of the bad things you have done, but because of the sin that lives in you by being a part of the human race. He's assuming that you know Jesus is the second Adam who made a better way, who made better decisions, who lived the perfect life, but died a sinner's death in our place so that we could no longer be slaves to sin, but be slaves to righteousness. And now in Romans 7, he talks about being released from the law and bound to Christ. And Romans 8 is, this is what it means to be bound to Jesus. I'm going to read 17 verses, and it's going to be very difficult for me to just read this straight through. Because at every period, I'm going to want to stop and scream. As you read this, greatest chapter in the Bible, according to so many people, I like 1 Corinthians 15 the best, and we'll talk about that on Easter Sunday. But Romans 8, so beautiful. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. If you're there, say I'm there. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life 
has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. As hard as it is to stop, we're going to stop right there. If you know Romans 8, you know the back end. It gets better. What Paul is doing in Romans chapter 8 is listing the implications of the spirit-filled life. Because of what Jesus has done, believers are brought to new life. Though they live in bodies that are decaying and dying because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And here's what Paul's doing. He's drawing a line between two different lifestyles that are both possible in this room. A life with a mind governed by the flesh or a life with a mind governed by the Holy Spirit. Now, as a believer in Jesus... You and I have to deal with this tension and this war for the rest of our lives until we're face-to-face with God. That we have desires in us that are drawing us away from God and desires in us by the power of the Holy Spirit that are drawing us near to God. It's why life is so complicated. It's why when you wake up in the morning as a Christian, you go, I feel like I'm in a battle right now. It's because you are. And there are two yous who are coexisting. And even if you're not a Christian in this room, you probably believe that that's true. Like, There's a part of you that wants to get in really good shape and eat super clean, and then there's another part of you that wants to sleep in and eat candy and whatever you want all the time, and you're going, how can those two me's that want two completely different realities coexist? Well, on a grand scale, that's what Paul is saying is happening to you spiritually, that you got desires competing on two different sides going, the flesh wants what the flesh wants. What does flesh mean? We're not just talking about physical skin. We're talking about the animalistic part of you that just wants what you want regardless of what it costs someone else. 
We're talking about not caring about the ways of God, not caring about the laws of God, just wanting to be you, do you, and whatever is best for you at the time. But then you got what the Spirit desires in contrast with the flesh, and what the Spirit desires is to give you the life Jesus died and rose for you to live. Watch what Paul does. He tells us the difference between living in these two realities is not a difference in how you act. It's in a difference in how you think. That there's a mind renewed to be transformed in the power of the Holy Spirit, and there's a mind that has become enslaved and is still stuck in the ways that existed before you came to know Jesus. And so the question today is, how do I make sure my mind is governed by the power of the Holy Spirit? What Paul is saying is that the Holy Spirit breathing life into your soul is dependent on whether or not the Holy Spirit has authority over your mind. It's a battle of authority. Who's ruling you? Is there a part of your mind that just goes, I want what I want today. I want to pursue what I want to pursue today. Or, and by the way, that's who you'll be if you just default. That's who you'll be if you just wake up in the morning and go, I hope I walk in the Holy Spirit today, but I'm going to take no steps practically to make sure I actually get in that frame of mind and that way of thinking. But the pattern shifts when you consciously go, I've got to put on the mind of Christ and I've got to put to death who I used to be and let the mind of Christ govern me. And what, what is the difference between the two? Desires. That on a deep level, the spirit doesn't conflict, conflict with the flesh on the basis of what you do. It's on the basis of what you long for. That's why the greatest transformation that can happen to a Christian in this room, which is what we really want, is for you to desire God more than you desire sin. I always try to talk to new believers about their, their struggle to pursue doing righteous deeds coming from a place that goes, what God is truly after is not just that you would do the right thing, but that you would want to. And that on a deep level, the Holy Spirit would start to govern your life more than who you used to be. And it is this battle, it is this conflict that comes to a head in the question of whether or not you and I are living for the approval of man or from the approval of God. That at a heart level, is your mind governed by the power of the Holy Spirit or is your mind governed by the flesh? And this is what is so beautiful about Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is Paul going... If you are in Christ and giving you specific markers to know whether or not you're in Christ, if you are in Christ, you make the switch by believing it's already happened, not by pursuing it and making it happen. This is so deep. The Christian life really ultimately comes down to agreeing with God that he's done it all and walking by faith, not by sight, that that is actually the case. Romans 8 is not a roadmap to a transformed life. It is a reminder that you've already been transformed, so believe it and walk in it. It's identity before it's activity. And to do that, Paul establishes two of the greatest metaphors he could possibly give us to show us how much we belong to God. He starts in the courtroom, and he ends in the family room. And all I want to do today is encourage you, if you are in Christ, in the realities that exist for you when you leave this space, but I don't want to do that and just have a comfortable message about being approved by God, and let's all get full of the love of God and leave here believing it without actually inviting you to read Romans chapter 8 and ask yourself the question that Paul asks. Whether or not you are in Christ is dependent on whether or not the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of you. And there's a test in Romans 8 to ask yourself, Is that true of you? It's that little verse that says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 
If you are here today and you're going, I don't, I don't know if the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of me. Here's a good test. Is there a voice inside of you preaching to who you really are when you walk in ways that are contrary to the ways of God? You're a child of God. See, the test of the Holy Spirit is not a test of what spiritual gifts have been manifested through your life. It's a test of whether or not you are ruled by a voice that has been gifted to you. And those who do not have the Holy Spirit are able to continue in sin and totally shut off the voice of God. Here's why. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't rule them from within. So today, I want you to ask the question, is everything Miles is preaching true about me? Do I actually believe it? But the test is not, have I prayed the right prayer at Vacation Bible School? Did I get baptized at the right time? Did I really mean it when I said this? No, the test isn't about anything that you did. It's about, is there a power living on the inside of you, reminding you of who you really are? Is there a part of you when you persist in sin that goes, this is not you. You cannot stay on this road. You have to turn. Is there a part of you when you start to shun the ways of God that goes, this is so dark and this is so miserable and I just want to come back? Not repenting like Esau, who cried because he lost the blessing of God. That's not true repentance. But the repentance of a broken man or woman who goes, even if everything in me wants to walk away from God because of sin, I know I won't because he's better. Jesus has won my heart, he has won my mind, and he has won my life. That's a Christian, not someone who reflects back and goes, did I say it right, did I get it right? No. Does the Holy Spirit live on the inside of you? You are in Christ. And if you are, I wanna preach some promises from God to you about how much God approves of you. Let's start in the courtroom. Go back to the beginning, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you haven't memorized it, highlighted it, underlined it, start it every way you possibly can, mark down Romans chapter 8, verse 1 in your mind forever. Because one of the primary lies of the enemy as it relates to your sin in a lifestyle that's being transformed over time is that God still has judgment out for you. And Paul says, here's the culmination of what Jesus has done. There is now therefore no condemnation. That word condemnation, it's courtroom word. It means to judge down and cast away. And the Bible says if you're in Christ Jesus, there's not even a, an inkling of that in God's heart and mind. There is now, wasn't the case before, because of Jesus, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. What's the law of sin and death? It's the law that says you got to get yourself right to be good enough for God. It's the law that says this, earn your approval before God. And Jesus replaces earning your approval with giving it away on the basis of his blood and his identity in the sight of his Father. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death, for what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh. In other words, the law from the Old Testament wasn't bad, but it was weakened by the flesh. When you got rules and restrictions, and you got sinful humanity walking in their flesh, you have a recipe to hell, to have them separated from God. But when we couldn't do anything about it, what happened? God did. 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, Jesus walked in a human body, but not marred by sin, looked like it, but not marred by sin, to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Paul is saying what Jesus did by living the perfect life, by shedding his blood and rising from the grave is finish on your behalf the courtroom case of whether or not you are approved by God. You've got two truths today. Truth number one is this. I am approved by the opinion of God. I am approved by the opinion of God. You want to get your soul at rest? You want to figure out that you can stop living your life for the approval of them or that or even yourself? This is the one. I am approved by the opinion of God, and I know scores of people, including myself, who find themselves restless and burnt out because they spend their lives performing in the courtroom of public opinion. Spend their whole life putting on a performance and watching, like there's a theoretical jury watching them, and they're going, am I valuable enough yet? Am I worth it enough yet? Have I earned my identity in the sight of whomever is watching you? This could be a parent. This could be a sibling. This could be how you think your life should look by now. This could be your closest friends. This could be culture. But you're sizing yourself up in real time in the courtroom. Everybody's lined up. You're on trial, and you're looking to the jury going, have I made it? Am I approved? Here's what Romans 8 says. It says the courtroom's already been adjourned. Gavel's already dropped. And judge has called you not just innocent, but approved. You're in my family now. You are a part of the story of God. And I didn't hit play on that when you started performing to see how it would go. I hit play on that before you started performing so that you wouldn't do it to earn anything. You would do it because I've given it to you freely. Two very different core heart-level convictions. Here's the choice you have, and this will be, by the way, the reason why you're either exhausted or the reason why you are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. you got two choices every day. You can earn approval through activity, or you can receive approval through identity. That's your choice. You can spend the rest of your life going, I'm going to earn who I am by all my activity. I'm going to do and do and do, and then ultimately, eventually, I'll be able to stand up, whether that's in front of a group, whether that's online, or whether that's just in your own imagination and go, I am the version of me that has earned what I sought after. But most of the time, actually all the time, you'll end up on an endless pursuit of something that never really delivers that fulfillment. If you're always earning activity, 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 who am I? I'm searching, I'm searching, I want to be told. Or this is the gospel. You receive approval through your identity. One is exhausting and one is freely given to you because of Jesus. Now, game changer, game changer. It is good, but it's going to get better. Everybody look up here. We are in church, and even in my own life experiences, I believe we are preaching this one wrong. We talk about the approval of God like it makes up for the rejection of man. And a lot of times people won't ever consider how much they need to fill themselves on the inside with God's approval of them until they don't have that approval that they were seeking elsewhere. So we talk about the baptism of Jesus. Isn't it interesting that God names his approval for Jesus as his son before his ministry, not after? Because everything Jesus did came from the overflow of being God's child, not to earn his place as God's child. 
But we tell people that, and that's a good message. We tell people that after they've already been rejected or after they're already lonely or after they're already seeking something that they haven't gotten. And so I know for me, I haven't really realized how addicted I am to the approval of man until I haven't had it. Because you get it and you're able to ignore it and give glory to God on the surface without ever addressing the wound. And then you don't have it and you go, oh, I got I to gotta do all that stuff. Like, yeah, I got to hear God's voice tell me that I'm God's son and my identity is secured in him. And I got to, whoa, this didn't work, so I'm going to run over here. And then when you do that, the results are disappointing at best. Like, you'll have some good times alone with God and you'll have some good verses that you read, but you're still hurt by what they said. You're still destroyed by the approval that you lost. You're only really running back to God because you didn't get this. Here's the way to get free, and here's the way to get your heart at rest. It's not from responding to rejection by seeking God's approval. It's by, on the front end, considering how to get yourself free from the need of applause in the first place. You don't go, well, if I get rejected, God approves of me, so it's fine. You go, whose applause am I living for and why, and how do I replace that with the applause I've already received from God? Whose approval am I waking up in the morning going, I got to earn this. I got to arrive at this. I got to get there. And it's when you get free from your need for applause and only live to please God that your soul is able to be at rest. And now all your activity can come from the freeing, breathing, restful version of who you are in Christ. I told this illustration a couple of years ago. I think it's so powerful. I read a story in a book about rest, about this concert violinist in New York City who was asked in an interview, she was asked, what do you do with the striking contrast between what happens at night at your concerts and what happens the next morning when the newspapers go out? They were asking her, basically, what's it like to get a standing ovation from thousands of people and then the next morning read reviews of your performance telling you how poorly you did? Like, what, what's that dichotomy like where you go from, man, this is awesome, to do I even have anything to offer? Her response, brilliant. She said, well, it used to hold me captive. It used to make me a slave. I would hear them cheer and I would live off of that for the night and then in the morning I would just be destroyed. But she said, I wasn't free from the power of the critical reviews in the morning until I was also free from the power of the applause the night before. She said, watch this, the way I got free from looking to the applause of the crowd was by looking to the approval of my conductor. And so now I'm not looking to them to tell me how I'm doing. I'm looking to him. And if he thinks I did good and they don't think I did good, that's my standard. That's the one I'm looking to. And she said, she said, I was able and I'm still able to deal with the negative criticism because I'm no longer living for the positive response. The way to get your life free from your addiction to their approval is not by going, I don't need anyone's approval. I got God. I'm fine. Oh, clearly, you sound fine. No. It's not by ignoring that you have an issue. It's by recognizing you're created by God to be addicted to approval. The reason why you're addicted to their approval is because there's a heart level need for that approval on the inside of you. It was just never supposed to be filled by them. It was supposed to be filled by him. And so if you switch it and go, hold on, maybe I'm not supposed to pretend like I don't need approval. Maybe I'm supposed to recognize that I am a fountain, like I, I am ready for a fountain to fill me from within of approval, and I'm not supposed to earn that through my activity before whoever's watching. I'm supposed to just receive that freely in the sight of God. Watch this, in real time. And I can tell you, getting up here, it is so different. The me who's up here to impress you versus the me who's up here to say what God told me to say and knowing I'm approved in his sight. And the difference is not just like, 
I don't care what people think. I care what God thinks. The difference is rest. The difference is breathing. The difference is rolling your shoulders back and knowing you got nothing to prove to anybody because God has filled you. This is how Paul lived, okay? When you look at Paul's life, you go, that's not a guy who rests very much. Like He's always getting beaten and thrown in prison and almost killed and life is hard. Try to tell Paul, say la. Like, hey, hey, man, you just need to rest a little more. He's going, I, I, I definitely have rhythms in my life, but there's a lot of activity. Here's why Paul's heart was at rest. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. When your mind is governed by that type of thinking, your soul is at rest. And I don't mean saying it. I don't mean thinking you believe it because Paul wrote it. I mean at the core of who you are, experiencing the abiding love of God in real time and going, he really does approve of me. He really does love me. He really does have a plan for me. He really is on the inside of me. And then all of a sudden, the rest of your life, whether it's rejection, whether it's persecution, whether it's difficulty, whether it's never stepping into seeing the fullness of what you thought your career would be, whatever it is, you're able to do that with a heart that's at rest because all of that is the overflow of already knowing it's enough. He's enough. And he's on the inside of me. This is so contrary to the popular preaching that God just wants to help you live out your hopes and dreams and show you how great he thinks you are. Uh Uh-uh. God might help you live out your hopes and dreams, and he might take you to the place of your worst nightmares. The difference is knowing wherever he takes you, he's with you and for you and in you. And if you got that approval, you can face whatever. And if it goes well, that doesn't have to define you, and you don't have to ride the roller coaster of trying to stay on top. Because you already realize I'm freed. I am approved by the opinion of God. That's number one. That's the courtroom in Romans 8. And it would be enough to stop right there. I am approved by the opinion of God. Wow. And I do want to say, just at the end of that point, it's, it's not enough for me to preach it. It's not enough to write it down. It's not enough to journal about it once. This is an approval that you have to learn to let it wash over you daily. That's what John 15, abiding in God's love for you, it's about reminding yourself, I I really am, even if I don't feel like it. I am approved by the opinion of God because of Jesus. But number two, it just gets ridiculous. I am adopted in the family of God. He didn't have to do it. He didn't have to leave the courtroom and take you to the house and show you how much you belong there, but he did it anyway, and and we're going to go there. One of the most powerful breakthroughs I'm experiencing in my life personally right now is as soon as I start a time of prayer or a time of worship, I'm starting to convince myself in my head that somewhere I'm believing a lie about the goodness of God that needs to be rooted out. And so I've started to like even start my prayer, dear God, what rushes to my head? All the disappointments, all the frustrations, all the things that I want to turn over to him, all the things that I wish I would have done differently, all that. And I'm going, hold on, hold on, hold on. Who are you talking to? You're supposed to start your prayer. Our Father. Whoa, hold on. You're talking to someone who isn't thinking about you the way you assume he's thinking about you. You're talking to someone who wants you to talk to him more than you want to talk to him. You're talking to someone who wants to answer your prayers more than you want to pray them. 
You're talking to a father who has lavished love on you to not just rescue you from sin and not just approve of you and give you validation, but to welcome you into his family and call you son, call you daughter, regardless of what your identity was before. That's what it means to be adopted. Look at these words, Romans 8. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, verse 14, are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Next time you go to pray and you're going, I want to pray in the Spirit, not in the flesh, you need to recite this verse. Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Is there anything you're afraid of going into the presence of God? Is there anything taking you captive, making you feel like, I don't belong here, and I don't have anything to say? Okay, okay, hold on, hold on. I need to remember, I don't live in fear again. Rather, the spirit I received brought about my adoption to sonship. By him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I mean, this is, this is ridiculous. Not just approved in the courtroom of public opinion, no, approved in the courtroom of God. But now, not just adopted into a new family, adopted into the family of God, called child, and it's like Paul can't stop. He's like, oh yeah, if we're children, then we're heirs. Because if I'm his son, then I also become the person who inherits everything he owns, which is what? Everything! This is a ridiculous lavishing of blessing and life and fruitfulness. And notice it says at the end, if indeed we share in his suffering. So it's not as if everything's just going to be easy and fun. But it's as if Paul is going, if the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of you, this could not be more secure. You are in the family of God. God is your father. And so here's what I want to teach us to do. I want to teach us, can we get full on the front end? Can we stop waiting so the applause dies down to run to God for the approval and stop needing the applause in the first place? I'm approved. I'm adopted by God. So not only do I want you to abide in God's love for you, I want you to freely invite it to fill you and rush over you and let it replace every lie you have come to believe up until now. A couple weeks ago, I saw this in real time. I, uh, we were, a couple weeks before Mercy Jane was born, we were going to bed one night. Courtney had already gone to bed. And I like stayed up finishing watching a basketball game or something. So I went to bed. And this is way later for me to go to bed. It was like 940. And um, which what, Courtney and I, like when you have kids, nobody tells you this. Like if we get to double digits on the clock, it is like, whoa, party, like 10 p.m. This is amazing. Um, so being up till 940, and it's relevant to the story, I promise. I was like, all right, I got to go to bed. And so I'm like walking around our, our, uh, our bedrooms on the bottom floor, girls are upstairs. And I hear the door to Aniston and Elliot's room open, which that should never happen in the middle of the night. And honestly, it has never happened before. Courtney's so brilliant. She gives them this light that tells them when they can come out of their room. And so they literally won't get out of their bed or come out of their room unless their light's blue. Just brilliant parenting. It's like, I will not move. Some of the parents in the room are like, is it really that easy? Yes! Just got to think about it. So I hear a door open and I'm like, That's, that should not be happening. I don't, I don't, maybe she's got to go to the bathroom and she has the freedom to do that, but that's very rare. Um, and so I look up the stairs and at our house, our stairs are pretty steep. And I just see Aniston kind of wandering from wall to wall, but getting closer to the edge of the stairs. And I realize 
she is sleepwalking. 100% doesn't know where she is and doesn't know what's happening. And so I walk to the top of the steps a little bit like, what? I've never seen her like this. And I kid you not, at the exact moment that she would have taken a step to plunge down the stairs and either experience massive amounts of harm or even worse. At the exact moment she's at the edge, all I do, catch her, pick her up, hold her, put her back to bed. Next morning I talked to her about this moment. I'm like, do you remember last night when I put you back to bed? She has no idea what I'm talking about. Now, side note, we've already done all the locking the door from the outside and it's never gonna happen again. But the next morning, we had a staff meeting where we were praying and we were about to bow our heads to pray. And I was like, hold on. Every time we pray, I think there's a hesitation in our spirit to actually believe the truth about what God thinks about us. I told them this story and I said, I, I just happen to be awake. That did not have to be the way that narrative went down, but literally she's sleepwalking, doesn't know where she is and ends up right back where she belongs on no effort of her own. In fact, if it were left up to her, so much damage would have happened to her and it wouldn't even have been her fault. And I'm telling you, as a dad, I'm just standing there going, how many times in my life have I been wandering into something that I don't even realize the consequences of? How many times have I been about to barrel roll over an edge of ultimately destroying my life? And how many times has my heavenly father been there? Oh no, he doesn't go to sleep at 940. He never slumbers. His eyes are always on the righteous. And if Christ is in you, you are included in that phrase, the righteous. And I just think in this moment, if we can remember in our story, how often our heavenly father has been there to catch us. And how often he's gone, you don't even know what I'm protecting you from. You don't even know all the ways I've been looking after you. But as my child, it is my honor to look after you like this. When we take communion today, I want you to rid your heart and mind of every lie you are tempted to believe about your heavenly father. I want you to know his heart is good, it is kind, and because of Jesus, you can draw near to him. If you're here today and you're going, I can't do that, I've, I've never said yes to God, this is your moment to do that, but one last encouragement from 1 John chapter three. This is what John wrote, he said, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. How do I get my heart at rest? How do I stop living addicted to the approval of everyone and everything else? Here it is. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. This is the ultimate verse to remind you when your heart is tempted to go, you, this isn't you, you don't belong. God's even greater than those emotions and those thoughts. So set your heart at rest with your God who has sent Jesus on your behalf. You can get your communion sets out now at all of our locations. Please go ahead and do that. If you didn't get one, just raise your hand. You can raise your hand outside, any location. We'll bring them all the way around. Every week we've been taking communion lately as just a reminder of the body and the blood of Jesus. That the night before he died, he invited believers to partake in communion or the Lord's Supper as a reminder that he did for us what we could never do to ourselves. Couple on the back row back there. And keep holding your hand up at any of our locations if you don't have one. I think this could be a powerful time. All I want you to do as you take communion, other than husbands praying over wives, like I always recommend you do, I just want you to recite those two things over you again and again as you remember the cross. I am approved by the opinion of God and I am adopted into the family of God. Let's just enjoy our sonship 
And let's take a second to get our hearts at rest. You can go into that time right now. The band will be up here in just one second to finish up. But let's enjoy this time in the presence of God.